I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 72, we read The Significance of the Frontier in American History, written by Frederick Jackson Turner, first published in 1893. Frederick Jackson Turner was born in Portage, Wisconsin in 1861. His father was a journalist and local historian. Turner graduated from the University of Wisconsin in 1884. He decided to become a professional historian and received his PhD from Johns Hopkins University in 1890. He served as a teacher and scholar at the University of Wisconsin from 1889 to 1910 when he joined the faculty of Harvard University. He retired in 1924 but continued his research until his death in 1932. And he was most famous for this book, which was a, originally an essay that, uh, that he built on and expounded upon throughout his career. Turner says, The existence of an area of free land, its continuous recession, and the advance of American settlement westward explain American development. American social development has been continually beginning over again on the frontier. This perennial rebirth, this fluidity of American life, this expansion westward with its new opportunities, its continuous touch with the simplicity of primitive society, furnish the forces dominating American character. The true point of view in the history of this nation is not the Atlantic coast, it is the Great West. The frontier is the line of most rapid and effective Americanization. For Turner, from this flat fact basically flows America's distinctive democratic ideals and behaviors. So for Turner, American progress is the story of cyclical redevelopment as the frontier moved progressively westward. You had a, a frontier that started pretty far east and then continued west, and that's the story of America. And it's a really interesting argument, and he basically develops that for us, this idea of having a, a continuously new frontier is what the characterized America most, and, and it's also what he believes is what gave birth to true American sort of democracy. Right. So, I mean, he, he's, if he, he starts in the colonial era and then, you know, the people that got here in the 1500s, 1600s, they were Europeans and they had European culture and, you know, going across the Atlantic didn't change that. So when, when we look at what makes America a distinct nation, you know, are we just the offshoot of Britain and a few other places? Well, for Turner, it's the frontier. It's the, it's the, the encounter with the wilderness that sort of makes, makes us adapt, makes us, sort of maybe leave behind some things from, from Europe that don't make sense here and adapt new things and, you know, learn from the natives and mingle with each other and people from different countries and, and different colonies getting together in the, in the new West. And ultimately that, that wilderness is conquered by the settlers there. But in the meantime, the, the settlers are not themselves unaffected by the wilderness. And what, what you're left with is a, a place that eventually after long enough period is as settled as, Europe, but it's different because it's in touch with uh, the frontier and in touch with, with nature and sort of the realities and struggles of that life in a way that the old world hasn't been in many centuries. Yeah, as you say, he says, uh, the advance of the frontier has meant a steady movement away from the influence of Europe, a steady growth of independence on American lines. It just evolved over time, and he thinks it 
as the as the lines continually shift, it's almost like America had to continually reinvent itself because those people on the on the front lines of the frontier, it's a really fascinating argument. He says, America has the key to the historical enigma which Europe has sought for centuries in vain. And the land which has no history reveals luminously the course of universal history. I mean, we've talked about this in other podcasts that think about Europe is it's very old and it's very well trod. And you have uh, fences, well, walls built of rock, of, of stone piling upon stone in Ireland and in England that are thousands of years old, literally. <laughs> There's not much left to find or to see. And so you're continuously born into a history where in America, particularly on the frontier, you're, you're born into, you're creating history. You are history. The history is unfolding. Really interesting idea. Yeah, and he's writing this book in 1893. Uh, it was, or the, the essay, and then the book came a few years later with other essays added to it. So what, what I think spurred him to write this was that in 1890, the Census Department, which had up to that point sort of demarcated the frontier when they did their surveys, when they said that if population was below a certain level of density, that was considered the frontier. And up to that point in American history, there had always been a line or two lines, you know, as, as the West Coast got settled that would sort of mark where is sort of beyond the frontier, beyond the pale, you know, and out there it was, it was often Indian territory or just, you know, maybe there were a few settlers there, but not enough to really call it a civilization, just scattered outposts. Now by 1890, with the railroads all coming through and people spreading out, there were still some areas that weren't settled. There are still Indian reservations, which they would have considered unsettled, you know, in, in the you know terminology of the time. But they were so scattered that it, it there was no there was no line to be drawn anymore. There was just this spot and that spot, and maybe this desert wasn't filled in yet, and maybe you know this this spot on the plains was empty yet. But American civilization had gone from coast to coast, and you know to Jackson that 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 is the end of an era, because it's not just that the people on the frontier were getting this experience of wilderness and remaking themselves, but the, even the folks back east who were settled had to deal with those folks in the West. You know, when they got to Congress together, the East might have more settled ideas, ideas that were closer to the old world because they, they had been built up. And, you know, people living in Virginia, where it had been settled for, at this point, almost 300 years when he wrote this. But they'd get to Congress and they'd have to talk to somebody from Dakota who was on land that, you know, he, he busted that sod himself. You know, this was this was the real, yeah. you know. So even even the settled folks, we're getting the influence of the frontier, the individualism, the just that that kind of American spirit that was was absent in the old world because there was no place to do it. Like like you were saying about the fences that and, and walls that are a thousand years old, like there, there was this idea of homesteading, like that didn't exist in Europe. Everybody, every land was spoken for. You know, it was all, all owned by some king or some duke or or even a, a non noble but a rich guy. You know, usually. It was all owned. It had all been owned for years. America had this this new thing, you know, where you could just go a little farther west and, uh, you know, you, you farm it, build a house on it, and the government will say it's yours. And that is uh, a huge difference. And it's and I think in the reason Jackson's writing this is I think he's partly wondering what's going to happen now. Because this, yeah. what, you know, is America going to still be as different from Europe? Is that individual spirit going to persist you know is it baked into the culture after more than 200 years or is uh or are we going to creep back to the old ways after everything kind of gets filled in yeah 
Yeah, he does a great job describing kind of the the east and west as almost opposing forces, where you have the east who almost has the country by a rope and is pulling, you know, it's almost like a dog trying to get away or to, you know, going taking the dog on a walk, and the dog's decided I'm going to chase down that bird or whatever, yeah. and uh, the east is trying to pull back. He says from the the time the mountains rose between the pioneer and the seaboard, a new order of Americanism arose. The West and East began to get out of touch with each other. The settlements from the sea to the mountains kept connection with the rear and had a certain solidarity, but the over-mountain men grew more and more independent. And it's kind of like trying very very hard to keep, uh, keep the reins on what was happening out West, but you just had people who wanted to build a better life for themselves and maybe something wasn't working out in wherever they, whichever state they were in. And so they decided to move West. He uses the example of public lands, which is kind of near and near to my heart because I'm from the West and most of the land out here is public land. But he said the policy of the United States in dealing with its land is in sharp contrast with the European system of scientific administration. Well, basically in Europe, you know, you either owned it through generations and generations of family or you didn't. Hmm. And as the West started to develop you you still had the east sort of trying to take hold and and uh, divvy out land and making it more difficult and he says efforts to make this domain a source of revenue and to withhold it from immigrants in order that the settlement might be compact were in vain like they couldn't stop it yeah (laughs) and i think about this a lot and for today because it's still the case it's absolutely still the case that you, you still have the eastern states or coastal states is probably more like it now trying to dictate what happens you know, in the West and in, in, on public lands they've never seen, you know, never visited. And uh, I don't know, it just jumped out at me. They're like this kind of spirit of, you know, we know best is and trying to maintain a stranglehold of control. Well, they couldn't back then, but uh, it's almost like time has allowed them to catch up and they have, Washington has much, much more control over land now. Oh, yeah. And he mentions this too. And, you know, it goes back even to before independence when, King George issued the proclamation of 1763, which you may, you may remember from your high school history classes, maybe if you paid attention, it, it was the idea that, um, they drew a line right around the the summit of the Appalachians and said, beyond that line is Indian territory and our colonists aren't allowed to go into it. And this was mostly land they had just taken from France in the French and Indian war. And American colonists were looking at it and saying, well, that's, you know, the Ohio Valley is, wide open right and, it, and as it turns out it's some of the best farmland in america but the king you know like a lot of colonial leaders didn't want all of the uh, productive people in his colonies to go into the west he wanted them to stay in the east make money for england mm-hmm. make, you know build up these colonies make them dense make them powerful instead of going off into the east and picking fights with the tribes there who you know didn't want them and they issued, this was one of the grievances that was in the declaration of independence and nobody listened you know because what are they going to do? They're, they don't have any. They don't have enough redcoats to to stop people from just homesteading, you know. And that's always how it how it is. And I think that carried into the into the period after independence too. Is you know that some tribe would make a treaty with Washington. They would agree, you know, this is the, this is the line. Nobody can come over it. And settlers would just do it anyway. Um, if you if you read the if you read the Little House on the Prairie books, that was in one of them. They were just uh, homesteading on Indian land because Pa Ingalls thought it was going to open up soon. And it turned out it didn't. And they had to leave. And, it, you know, but people were just doing that because that was 
this is part of the individualism that, that Turner points out in the American characters. Just and maybe it's the kind of person who came here, you know, yeah. as opposed to stayed in Europe. It's the kind of person who'd say, you know, no, I'm just I'm just doing it. There's it's right there. I'm taking it. Nobody else is farming that land. Nothing. It's not. It's got some uh, scrub scrub trees on it. I can tear them down, farm it, make it productive. And we've just been doing that forever. And it's uh, yeah. I I, I see your point about it's still. I, I wasn't thinking about it this way, maybe because I am a Eastern elitist, you know, <laughs> Westerners. And, uh, but yeah, certainly it's the, uh, you know, before Black Lives Matter, the BLM that people talked about was the Bureau of Land Management. And, uh, exactly. yeah, that's, there's been certainly some tension out there of, uh, bureaucrats in Washington saying what people can do on ranch land and mine land and whatnot out there. Yeah, and most recently declaring new national monuments mm. that the local people have no say. It's just immediately this is a this is now a national monument, and X Y Z things can no longer be done on this property. You know, sort of thing. Not that we don't want to say my I'm, I'm very much in favor of that. But anyway, so Turner has a really interesting. Uh, I mean, he kind of lays out the pattern that he that he thinks really characterized the the frontier in the West. He says, generally in all Western settlements, three classes, like the waves of ocean, have rolled over one another. First is the pioneer. You know, the pioneer comes out. The preemption law enables him to dispose of his cabin and cornfield to the next class of immigrants when he's done. So he goes out, like you said, the homesteader goes out, builds builds a log cabin, you know, uh, clears some land, declares it his own, you know, builds a family. His son has a cabin nearby, you know, and they, they kind of build from there. And then... The immigrants, uh, the emigrants come in and as, as they come in, then we start to, they say, he says, purchase the lands, add field to field, clear out the roads, throw rough bridges over the streams, put up hewn log houses. So it's no longer just kind of the homesteader mountain man family out by themselves, but now more and more people show up. Now you have actual real roads that are starting or well, dirt paths that are starting to get cleared. And the pioneer probably picks up and leaves <laughs> and goes to the next level. Or certainly the children, you know, are kind of feel the the call to move to the even further uh, frontier. And then another wave rolls on. He says, the men of capital and enterprise come. The small village rises to a spacious town or city. And I mean, when you think about it that way, I mean, it's it's super interesting because, you know, when I always think of the West, I think of the far West where you know, mountain states, Rocky Mountains, so forth. But the West, even for this guy, what what he's talking about the West is kind of the Midwest, you know, and like you said, the Ohio Valley and man, the nether reaches of nowhere is like uh, Indiana, you know, <laughs> Illinois, Kentucky. And um, and anyway, it just continues on and, and the, 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 the cities and towns are built. Indianapolis is built, you know, Cincinnati and and Chicago, we know, was an early city, and and then suddenly those become the kind of the the more populated, um, established places, and you just keep moving, moving. I mean, you can see that it just. I, I mean, he may, I think he makes a good argument, and I know that you know he's been somewhat criticized, and but uh, I mean, I think he makes a good argument that this kind of characterizes the kind of the American spirit. That all right, we're going to pick up and try it someplace new, and or you know, this is starting to fill up; it's too busy. So we're going to pick up and go. Yeah. And it must've seemed wild to people who came here from other countries. It's like, you can just, you can just get, you know, a quarter section out there for nothing. All you have to do is work it. 
and they'll give it to you. That's, I mean, that's that's kind of mind blowing now when you think about it. I mean, now that homesteading is done, I mean, it, it went on in Alaska a little longer than than in the lower forty eight, but it's I think it's done up there too. To think about it, it, it gives a, it gives a freedom. Lincoln talked about the true system of being, you know, working for another man one year and then, you know, having your own farm in a year and then maybe a few years down the road hiring another man to even work for you and help you out. And that's, that's you know, the progress, that, that land of opportunity. And a lot of that was powered by free land, which, yeah, I mean, what's the criticisms that will come into this are, of course, that, that it was Indian land, which is true. Um, but it what it did is it powered this system where somebody with nothing could all of a sudden have a little something, a little stability. And even like when he talks about the men of capital coming in, he also mentions sometimes those those initial immigrant farmers would stick around. And as their land became more valuable, they would become men of capital. Right. You know, and yeah. if you ever read some of these little um, county histories that are out there, and a lot, I've had cause to look at a few of them over the years. They'll often talk about, you know, somebody is such a, you know, a big shot in, in this county and in its early days. And it's mostly because he, he got there first. You know, like the leading, the judge in, in the county will often be like the first lawyer that got there, you know, yeah. whereas if he'd stayed in New York or, or Baltimore, he would have been one in a thousand, maybe not the best, you know, maybe not the worst. But when he went out to the wilds of Ohio, all of a sudden he was a learned man. And so, you know, that sort of idea that, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just start over again out West. I don't need to stick around this stinking city with all of its coal smoke and, you know, everything else. It's different than we live now, and and Turner was seeing the end of that in a way. But it's um, it it's wild, and it happened so fast too. I mean, partly because of the rails, but even before that, when they bought Louisiana, I forget who said it, but yeah, the idea oh, it would take a hundred years to fill this in at least, you know, maybe maybe more. But you know, it filled in pretty quick. Uh, yeah. That that promise of that opportunity, people people are willing to work for it. People are willing to travel a thousand miles into a land they've never seen to work for it. Turner makes a great argument that this dynamic of the frontier is really what created the kind of the melting pot character of America too. Mm-hmm. He calls it sectionalism, that the frontier broke down sectionalism. But I think what he's really meaning is groups move on. So he says, the middle region was an open door to all Europe. The tidewater part of the South represented typical Englishmen, modified by a warm climate and servile labor and living in baronial fashion on great plantations. So in other words, like in Virginia, that was been plantations for 300 years and very English and snooty and uh, held slaves and very much uh, traditional. And then he says, uh, New England stood for a special English movement of Puritanism. In Boston, they were no less sort of exclusionary than, uh, than in Virginia, although maybe a different different type and character. But in contrast, the Middle Region had a wide mixture of nationalities, of a varied society, the mixed town and county system of local government, a varied economic life, many religious sects. It was democratic and non-sectional, if not national. Easy, tolerant, and contented is the phrase that he uses, rooted strongly in material, material prosperity. So what we have in common is not so much that, you know, you're Scots-Irish and I'm Pennsylvania Dutch or, you know, German or whatever. Mm-hmm. But what we have in common is that we all want to come out here and try to make a better life. And we're all working it together. And he said the frontier promoted the formation of a composite nationality for the American people. The coast was pre- uh, 
preponderantly English, but the later tides of continental immigration flowed across to free lands. This was the case from the early colonial days. I mean, really cool and a really great description. And of course, I have ancestors that did the same who came from Scandinavia as well as later English, not uh, not the Virginia English, and came west and just finding, looking for a new life. They were poor in poverty back in Europe, and they were coming here not to sort of live as as aristocrats, but just to find plot of dirt in the West mm-hmm. to, to grow crops. And it's just a, a really um, amazing dynamic that, you know, no other, no other country, no, certainly no uh, European country would, could have a, a, dy- a dynamic and a character like that, where you just had people flooding in and saying like, all right, you're my neighbor now. And, uh, you know, we want to build a well. So, Let's get to it. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And he, t- I, I like, he kind of focuses on that. He, sa- he says, such examples teach us to beware of misinterpreting the fact that there's a common English speech in America into belief that the stock is also English. And right. I think that's um, important. I think when people look at what is the American nation, the fact that we speak English doesn't mean we are English, you know, and I mean, most most of my ancestors are not English and that's true for a lot of folks. We live in this American culture and we speak this English language that we share with the English in other countries. But from those early days, the West was that real melting pot that not even, not even a melting pot. Cause it added something new too. It added that, that contact with, with the, with the wilderness, with the, that fight for survival that, that changed all of the cultures that came to it and mixed them together. So really, I I think the way he put that is, is really a good explanation of American nationalism and why we're, we are, there is an American ethnicity, you know, it's, and that's, that seems weird to say, but then we, we talk about, you know, there's a Mexican ethnicity and they're also a new world nation, you know? So we talk about somebody, you, you might say somebody is half Canadian. Well, they're the same as us in this respect. You know, they are also a, a, a nation that began as colonies and, and became its own thing. So I, I mean, I think this lends credence to the idea that there is something different here and it's not just an extension of European or even of English culture. And this, this is his overarching argument about American exceptionalism, which is just fallen so out of favor in the Academy today where thing is about, about identity and, race and everything as opposed to you know he's saying america became this i'm going to use the word melting pot but it became a place where people from from europe would come and uh find a new life i mean just work hard and and uh, as they and out on the frontier he says the tendency is antisocial it produces antipathy to control and particularly to any direct control i mean so it's almost like they weren't finding ways to divide themselves they were finding ways to you know kind of identify together and they had the kind of the same kind of the same spirit that well up until very recent times i think the west still still kind of does have today but it's it but it is kind of uh it's it's, it's starting to fade but you know kind of a almost a libertarian like don't tread on me <laughs> kind, of, kind of feeling that's not really i wouldn't call it conservative so much as just a, a self-reliance and a kind of a, a rugged individualism that's I think what we're identified as as Americans you know if, when Europeans still think of us as kind of in in that light definitely he also has some ideas about nationalism as opposed to the sort of old states first 
kind of idea that he says the Louisiana Purchase was perhaps the constitutional turning point in the history of the Republic, inasmuch as it afforded both a new area for national legislation and the occasion of the downfall of the policy of strict construction. I never thought about it that way, but it's true. It's it's that period where the the Jeffersonian Democrats, which were all about you know the states, local everything else, kind of became the Jacksonian Democrats, who were they might like some local control and they might like government to be hands off, but they were nationalist. You know, Jackson was a nationalist. When South Carolina talked about seceding in the 1830s, Jackson made it clear that it wasn't allowed and that he would see to it. And they, they got back in line. That that's real nationalism. And that's, and also this, the manifest destiny thing. It's sort of a, you know, this country, not just, you know, my state of New York or Pennsylvania, but this country has a destiny. And it, it comes through when you read some of the founding fathers writing, like if you, so I've read something where Jefferson was talking about my country and he meant Virginia. And this was after the constitution and the articles of confederation and all this, but that's how those guys really thought because they, they hadn't been united that long and they still, I mean, they knew they were Americans, but they, you know, it's like if we just joined up with Canada tomorrow, you'd still think you'd still see the line in your head. You know, when right, you looked right. at, when you looked at the map, you'd see that. 49th parallel and say yeah there's that's them and that's us and i think that's how some of the the founding generation still thought when they looked you know if a marylander would still see that mason dixon line and say yeah that's that's a different place over there yeah but as he, he quoted somebody else saying that in 1789 the states were the creators of the federal government in 1861 the federal government was the creator of a large majority of states yeah, 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 and it's and like it's true. Like the federal government created Illinois, and the people that settled it weren't, you know, from old Illinois. They were from Pennsylvania, from New York, from Virginia, from the Carolinas, yeah. just all of them, and from overseas. So it, it it definitely. I mean, we look at things differently after that, and I I can see why. I never thought about it this way, but I can see why he points to Louisiana Purchase as that time. And I think he also has a really interesting argument about how it actually was the the folks on the on the frontier that felt the most nationalist because to your point like in virginia they they felt themselves as virginians you know first and second you know and the americans second but on the front lines they that the us versus them was really against the the, the indians you mm-hmm. know there's this really interesting quote where where uh, said duquesne to the iroquois are you ignorant of the difference between the king of england and the king of france you know, and it really jumps out to me today because all the Indians who had all their different tribes mm. and they didn't view themselves, you know, the Iroquois certainly didn't, you know, identify with, with the Navajo or have any idea about that right. for, for that matter. And the Scots Irish didn't identify with, uh, with the old Virginia de- uh, gentry uh, by any, by any means, but that's kind of how the kind of the birth of nationalism is actually those people on the frontier, they did have to work together and kind of the us versus kind of the the indians that um you know potential i mean again uh, i think plenty would would argue that the settlers were the aggressors but in any case you know the, the the conflict between the two sides like people in missouri didn't view themselves as missourians yeah and it's that's that um that conflict draws people together and you know it's it's like when we had that episode about uh Kevin Vallier's book about uh, declining trust and most of the studies of trust go back to the 
they didn't start really asking people these kind of survey questions until the 40s or 50s. So people ask themselves, was that just a really high era of trust? Or was it always high and now we're bad? But, you know, yeah. it maybe having come through the World War and the Depression together did bring us together more as a people. And it's like, you'd never want that. You know, you'd, you'd rather have a good economy and peace. But maybe that's the silver lining of, of going through something horrible together, whether it be, you know, Indian wars on the frontier or a world war or, or, or a financial epidemic or maybe even this pandemic we're having now. Maybe it, maybe it draws you together a little more. Actually, I don't think this one now is doing that at all. But, you know, the, the bigger conflicts, when you come out of it, you say, yeah, we're all one. We, we all did this together. We all, you know, we won this war. We won this land, whatever it is. So I wonder if a lot of that declining trust and declining identification with each other is just maybe it's that we aren't fighting anything anymore, except, yeah, you know, so, yeah. so we fight each other instead. I mean, supposedly we should be fighting the virus, yeah, but that hasn't really brought us together. It's definitely separated us even further. Yeah, it's true. Which is a real bummer. I mean, uh, just to reflect for a second, I mean, uh, you read the stories about about the the English getting, you know, bombed by the Germans. They came together and became a stronger nation because of it. And Winston Churchill and his amazing oratories, and and you just hope and wish for that kind of situation in America. And this seems like the moment, but unfortunately it's uh, I guess not to be, but so he has a lament for the end of the frontier. He says, never again will such gifts of free land offer themselves. There is not tabula rasa, a clean slate mm -hmm. in, in America. There was a clean slate for quite a while. And there no longer would be one. Now four centuries from the discovery of America at the end of a hundred years of life under the constitution, the frontier has gone and with its going has closed the first period of American history. And geez, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? it? I yeah. mean, that just really jumped out at me. It really does. And it's, I think you have to, if you don't, if you don't read these things, you don't realize how different they were. It's like when we read the uh, Neil Postman's book, you don't realize how different people talk now compared to a, the 19th century because we're, we're in it and you know, nobody's from around from back then. But when you, when you study it and you think, well, you know, they really live differently. And that, that sort of safety valve of the West allowed allow the cities to let off a lot of steam. You know, I think it was, you know, the cities were getting industrialized by the 1890s. You had like, we were as industrialized as any part of England or, or Germany, you know, at least here, here in Pennsylvania and in other Eastern States. But if a guy was, sick of it he could throw down his wrench and walk out the door and take a train to the west and, right. and there was his yeah. new life you know he just might not succeed there either you know but he but he might and he had the chance and and i think that there's no way to replace that because the land's all gone and there's there's no new continents there's no you know i mean unless we start colonizing the moon there's there's nothing there but it it's different and it's made me think also like how how even after that period, there was still a lot of that freedom to just start over. Like when you hear people in our, our parents' generation, you know, the, sort of the, the baby boomers talk about, like my dad talked about when he came out of high school, there was four or five factories he could walk to that were all hiring. Wow. You could just go to them. And, you know, and he, had a, he had a high school diploma. And even if he didn't have that, he could have got work. And, you know, but he, but he had that. And that was, that was enough. And you could have had a, good job making good money and 
you know, he, he did that for a while. And that is a kind of freedom too, because if, if the one job is lousy, if the boss is riding you, if it's a, it's a terrible place to work, there's another one not that far, you know, or even if you have to go to another town, there's jobs and you don't need elite credentials. You don't need, right. you know, yeah, you don't need yeah. a JD or PhD or any of these things. You just need the willingness to work hard. And yeah. I think, I think that was sort of the second era, the, enter, the era we entered after the Turner essay of, you know, industrial America. And then after outsourcing and automation and some things that can't be turned back, like, like automation is not going away. Outsourcing maybe, but, you know, some of these things have changed just because of the technology. And now I think we're in that third, in the third period, that's different even from that, where it's, there's even less fluidity, less, we're all more tightly entangled in a system, which is kind of like what we, our ancestors left behind in Europe is being caught up in the system. Now a system is moving in on us. You know, we have, you can't just start over as easily. You still can sometimes. I mean, there's there's still entrepreneurship. I mean, this is still the greatest country to start over in, but it's it's not what it was. And I think that that changes has to change how we look at ourselves and and the problems that we're addressing. I mean, a lot of the, the the populist uprisings of 2016 and 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 up to now are coming from that frustration. You know, guys looking toward the not so distant past where they could do this and saying, why isn't it that way anymore? Why isn't that opportunity here for me? When, like yeah. it was here for my father and my grandfather. So it's, and obviously some things are better now. I mean, I'm not down on America. I, you know, like we talked about in the Tim Carty book, you know, there's, I, I still see a lot of great things happening here, but it, you can't deny that that change is happening. And it's almost as big, I think, as the change Jackson was talking about, or Tur yeah. Jackson Turner was talking about. Those are some great insights because what is, what is our release valve today? I mean, if somebody feels like they live a meaningless life back in 1875, a family could just pick up and go mm. and say, all right, we're going to try it. We're going to do this versus now. I mean, you're right. It is still possible to change careers, let's say, but at no time in history, I mean, first of all, you, uh, a high school diploma is not going to get you much. So that's what 13 years of school. If you count kindergarten yeah, and then college is four more 17 years and, you know, like you, you want to get a graduate degree or something like that, or, you know, like when in the history of the world do you need 20 years of schooling in order to be competitive for that first job? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's crazy. And, and so switching jobs and switching careers, it's just back then it wasn't about careers. And I think in that way, I think we're much fortunate to be born, you know, in this day and age where, where we have options to, to have more of a, a thinking economy and have a have a, a podcast or something like that that advantages maybe people like you listener who, who uh, on this this to this podcast i guess the other difference though is um when uh, the downside is you can't just pick up and decide like well i'm gonna do it because there's there's no way to do that you know the land is taken so there's not that and and if you don't have that education you got to build towards it you know it's almost like you have to as you call it the credentialing and, and, and credentialing has never been more important than it is today. And uh, whether that actually represents actual ability and skill, I think is a little bit uh, of uh, controversial. But mm -hmm. we can't deny that, you know, it's, it's really not possible to just say, you know, this is not working for me. I'm sick of it. So I'm going to pick up and go. Uh, there's, no, there's no way to do that. And in fact, 
I, I suspect that one of the reasons we have the, the lowest rate of, of mobility, uh, as in moving around the country, that, that in, in, in like the last 75 years is people don't necessarily think it's going to be better somewhere else. Yeah, maybe I could make more, but the cost of living is also a lot more expensive. And mm. can I even get that job? And do I have the right credential? And do I know the right people? And you didn't need to know the right people in order to homestead. Nope. You just needed to pick up and go. You just need a strong back and a, and a willingness to work hard. And that, yeah, it's, um, and you know, there are still jobs you can get with just high school, you know, I mean, there, you can work in the trades, which, and you can make good money at it sometimes, but it's not as easy as it used to be to get into a lot of those other manufacturing type jobs. You know, I mean, I, I've got relatives who worked in factories, but I know a lot in their career was this factory closed. I had to get to a different one, you know, and that it was, yeah. it was, it was rarely a new one opened, you know, it was, or a new one opened, but it only has 10 guys in it. Yeah. So yeah. it's, I mean, and like the closing of the West, you can't, you can't just reverse automation. That's, that's here. You like, you, you can't make new land, you know? I mean, when it's gone, it's gone. I know I'm not saying I have any answer to what we do now, um, but it's, it definitely means we have to look at things differently. And I, and it makes me wonder if, if that individualism that the frontier made is dying out because it, it does maybe mm-hmm. it doesn't have a place here anymore. Yeah. I think it does, but I can see, I can see how other people would say that that that's the past. Well, we have a couple minutes left, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention kind of what he's what most most known for, which is the the overarching argument that uh, demo- democracy in America was really generated by by this frontier lifestyle. He says, from the beginning of the settlement of America, the frontier regions have exercised a steady influence towards democracy, and I think what he means is more in the in the vein of of the of Tocqueville, which is democracy is in like we're all equal, we're mm-hmm. all the same, not not democracy like we think of where you go and vote, but when you're out on the frontier, there's you don't we're not talking about your lineage or your aristocratic heritage. You know, it's what matters is do you have the strong back? Are you willing to lift? Are you strong? Are you going to get to work? I mean, the the demands of living on the on the frontier, or living out beyond civilization are just so demanding that breeds kind of a feeling of yeah we're all equal like this this guy is no better than me you know we're we are all the we're all here like just struggling ourselves and i don't really care who your daddy was mm-hmm. because it just doesn't matter out here we gotta we gotta make sure that that bear doesn't you know attack our cattle or whatever mm-hmm. yeah it was a new kind of life something maybe that hadn't been seen in the world in a long time and probably won't be seen again and i i just one thing i i, I wanted to close with is the way turner described the american character he said that coarseness and strength combined with acuteness and inquisitiveness that practical inventive turn of mind quick to find expedience that masterful grasp of material things lacking in the artistic but powerful to effect great ends that restless nervous energy that dominant individualism working for good and for evil and with all that buoyancy and exuberance that comes with freedom these are the traits of the frontier. And that's really what we think of as, you know, yeah, I love it. It's, it's great. It's poetic, you know, but it's, I think that's how, I think that's how the rest of the world sees us too. You know, I think that's, that's why Europeans think we're all cowboys, you know, because we, we, even those of us who are still pretty close to that thickly settled uh, coastal area, we still inherit that American tradition that was shaped by the frontier. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. And while, while you're reading it, you, you can just imagine, you know, 
Americans standing tall and, mm-hmm. and being proud. And, and, uh, I guess also my, my second thought, uh, my first thought is how much I, I love that vision. And the second thought is I recognize that there are a lot of people in this country today who, who are sickened by that, that same. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, oh man, we're in trouble, but, uh, that was a good way to, good way to end. Any other closing thoughts? No, I think, I think, uh, I'll leave it with that. Great. All right. That's Turner. Catch us next time.